Hi, this is Dr. Sarah Howard. The Pure Animal Podcast is growing. We're so excited to share our new Pure Animal Ambassadors with you. Join us monthly as we continue to dive deep into the most recent, relevant and interesting topics with our new team members. Associate Professor Wendy Boltzer, small animal surgeon. Dr. Meng Siak, veterinary dermatologist. Dr. Nicole Rue, integrative veterinarian. And Professor Caroline Mansfield, who's a small animal internal medicine specialist. We're thrilled about our new offering and we're sure you'll be able to find inspiration for your practice through the clinical wisdom of our new ambassadors. So make sure you catch the first of our new Pure Animal podcasts next month. We'll see you then. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we welcome back Dr. Nicole Rue to talk everything digestive health. We discussed essential oils with Dr. Nicole on episode 40 back in March 2022. So if anyone wants to read her full bio, please refer back to that episode. Hello, Nicole, and welcome back to the Pure Animal Podcast. We're so excited to have you back. We loved talking to you last time about essential oils, and I know it's certainly a popular episode with our audience. Um, So how are you going at the moment in this wintry time we're all living in? I'm really good. Thank you for having me. I loved the last podcast we did, and I'm really excited about our topic today. It's one of my favorite topics and would oh, honestly be a topic that I discuss every single day in clinic. So, super relevant to everyone. So, yeah, very really looking relevant. forward to it. Yes, me too. And absolutely, I mean, gut health, as we know, underpins all health and disease. So, should be relevant to every single um, listener, whether it's, you know, listeners with their own pets or whether it's listening practitioners with their own cases. So let's just jump straight in, Nicole. Um, So we're talking about digestive health, the microbiome and the use of um, different pre and probiotics mainly today. So I'd just like to hear from you when there's some sort of disease process occurring in the body, what actually happens to the gut microbiome? So the gut microbiome, or, or as I guess a more lay version is, is the, ba- the bacteria in the gut, uh, it, it basically gets an imbalance. So when anything happens in the body, so you've got infection, inflammation, any sort of disease, it causes an imbalance. And when we say an imbalance of bacteria, we're talking about either the composition or the type of bacteria in the mm-hmm. in the microbiome, or we're talking about the function of that bacteria as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess anything that happens in the body can lead to a dysbiosis. And sincere apologies if you can hear my dogs in the background too. They've decided That's to have a fine. bit of a game. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so we're talking about dysbiosis or an imbalance and anything from infection, antibiotic use, diet issues, even stress, anxiety, anything like that these days, we really have a good scientific understanding can cause it. Yeah, sure. And we're talking about, so when we say dysbiosis, um, obviously there's a large amount of bacteria that comprise the microbiome, but we're also seeing, do you also see changes in um, the other flora that comprise the microbiome such as the archaea and even different viruses and um, fungi? 
Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think our understanding is uh, just growing. It feels almost like by the minute, doesn't it, to what actually comprise the microbiome. I think we think of it mostly the bacteria because that's what we think of, of with the probiotics, replacing that. Yeah. But there's so yep. many other things like viruses and fungi and, and I'm sure we'll get into it today, yeast, which is one of my favourite yes. other things. But there's so much more than just bacteria in the in the microbiome. So that's a really good point. And, um, and I know this is a little off brief, but um, how do we measure dysbiosis in an animal? Are there are there tests that we can do? Do you send off a stool sample and we can assess whether there's dysbiosis present? Look, I think that would be definitely the ideal way. Um, we, practically speaking, in Australia, we don't tend to. Um, we tend yeah. to more, it's just too expensive, cost prohibitive. We don't have reliable tests in Australia to do it. So people may be familiar in the human world. They're, they're often doing tests and things you might submit a fecal sample, whereas when you're submitting fecal samples in Australia to the to the labs, we tend to more be testing for infectious organisms. So we'll do things like yeah. PCR tests for um, salmonella, for E. coli, for Campylobacter, all these yeah. infectious pathogenic. Um, but we don't tend to do stool testing, even in the integrative space, we don't tend to do mm. it to look at okay, the balance of the biome. But it, it would be It'd be amazing if we did. I'd really love that because there's so many human studies now where they've shown that actually analysing your microbiome is a really good predictor of what diseases you're at risk at, isn't it? So it's mm. it's quite incredible where the future is. Um, but certainly in the in the vet world, it's not really something we're doing yet. Uh, yeah, we do yeah. if we're looking at function and and dysbiosis in the gut, we tend to look. I guess we get some more sophisticated blood tests. So we might look at B twelve levels because that can be yeah. influenced, which which has a so one of the B vitamins, um, which has a big role in gut function. So we might look at more. I guess, consequences of dysbiosis or, or other factors yeah, sure. that are involved in a dysbiosis and a true biome test, which is, um, yeah, yeah. be interesting when, when we get there one day. Yeah, yeah, because I know particularly, and this sort of leads into the next question, I know particularly for humans, you know, having a sample assessed for the different levels of pathogenic or, you know, potentially pathogenic organisms versus beneficial, beneficial organisms can really then inform probiotic choices um, for yeah. therapy. So, uh, of course, we aren't as sophisticated in the veterinary world at the moment. But when you're looking at what you would like to actually administer in terms of a probiotic, how are you choosing what strains to recommend for your patients knowing without sort of having that specific information? Yeah, so it's, I guess I'm looking at what condition I'm trying to treat. We do certainly have some good evidence uh, even in the vet space. So we're not just relying on the human space. We've got some good evidence in the vet space with certain strains of bacteria and what they do. So I guess instead of looking at an assessment of what the dog currently has, we look at more the consequences of what they're presenting to us and, and I guess 
work what retrospectively so if we're looking at a dog with anxiety we we might look at some probiotics that have evidence that they might reduce anxiety so we've got the the new one out yeah. the bifidobacterium longum bl999 which had yes. a good research paper on it um so if i've got a dog with anxiety i'm going to pick a product that's got that in it whereas yeah. if i'm if i'm looking at a you know a dog that's got just general gut issues, maybe a bit of a leaky gut or some sort of sensitivity. I might look at Lactobacillus acidophilus, which is, you know, yeah. common human sort of one, or, or the Bifidobacterium animalis. So I guess we yeah. we have our little a little book of, of pretty standard probiotics and yeah. what they do. Um, most of them are gut related, but they're certainly coming. Um, out with more evidence for the mental health, which is really exciting. Uh, and I yeah. guess that also leads to a really big topic of, of quality and quantity, which I'm sure we'll get into. But it's it's yeah. not just a matter of picking the right name on the packet, is it? It's making sure you're using enough of it. Yeah, that's right. And you mentioned um, the strains that you've mentioned so far uh, just for dogs. Is there any evidence for cats with any of those strains, particularly for the mental health side of things? I haven't seen, I don't know if you've seen it, I haven't seen no, I haven't. the research with the, um, no. with the mental health issues with cats and I certainly haven't heard anyone mentioning it. Um, I'd probably have no issue in trying some of these things. I don't, no, but, yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah, I haven't seen any evidence with the, with the cats and the mental health, which is a shame because anxiety is really common in cats these days, isn't it? Yeah, I know. And the poor cats, they never get as much clinical research done <laughs> compared to dogs I think they're a harder population to study um and said it yeah study, yeah they are they are um so well that's great that sort of um leads us into some more specific discussions around probiotics which we'll get to but what about prebiotics um what are, what are you using for prebiotics and what are the benefits of those yeah, prebiotics are one of my favourite topics, actually, because I feel like probiotics get a lot of the good rap, but gosh, I think prebiotics have such a an amazing benefit, especially for just chronic maintenance or long-term maintenance. So when yeah. we're talking about prebiotics, so prebiotics are a fibre, just for anyone who... <clears throat> um, just isn't that familiar really with what prebiotics do. So they're a type of fibre, but not all fibre is a prebiotic. So that's sort of the, yeah. the trick, isn't it? So to be classified yeah. as a prebiotic, the fibre has to be able to pass through the gut, so pass through the small intestine, undigested, and then be able to get to the large intestine and act as a sort of food source for the good bacteria. So yes. it's a bit of a complicated definition, um, but I like to think of it, and, I, and I, this is not my analogy, I've heard many people use this analogy, but you, you're thinking of the probiotics as the plants. So they're the things that are growing and your prebiotics are your soil. And we know plants yeah, need a sure. good soil good nutrients, good food source to be able to grow. There's no yeah. point in just dumping all these beautiful bacteria into the gut without providing it with the nutrients to grow. It's just not going to work. So prebiotics are really, really important. And you find most, um, lots of supplements these days actually have prebiotics 
in them, even though in them. they'll be called a probiotic and you see them marked as a probiotic. When you actually look at the ingredients, lots of them have prebiotics in them as well, don't they? So um, yeah. when you're looking at prebiotics, we've also got quite a bit of research on them now these days too, which is really good, isn't it? Um, yeah. There's definitely prebiotic food that we're all that we're lots of people are familiar with and and they're the same as I guess in in the human world so you've got lots of vegetables like um, garlic and onions and um, asparagus and even cabbage has it and then some of Jerusalem our fruits. artichokes <laughs> yeah Jerusalem artichokes um so and then with the pre, the prebiotics the way they're they're working as we said they're getting to the the large intestine and um, the way they sort of ferment or break down, it helps um, the bacteria, feed the bacteria. Um, and yep. they've got different components. So we've got the fructo-oligosaccharides, um, that yep. type of fibre helps certain bacteria. And then we've got the galacto-oligosaccharides. Um, yeah. And and then you've got the more sort of resistant starch, like banana starch, and they all yep. have their different way of doing it. And I think... I don't know all the specifics, but the research is coming out now to show that there's certain um, prebiotics that actually will stimulate certain bacteria. And I think that's where yeah. we're headed with the research. That makes so sense, doesn't it? it? It really does make sense. And I can't wait for all the research to come out. And we're really focused in dogs on bifidobacterium and lactobacillus. They're the ones we're really looking at sort of stimulating so okay when yeah when they um when they're looking at the prebiotics and what they do I think the future will be literally that you're like oh we've got this certain condition in dogs this is the exact prebiotic that I want you to feed because we want to grow this exact strain of bacteria it'll be so cool when we get there so specific Um, yeah yeah really specific but in general now the prebiotics where you'll you'll really commonly see when you look at the ingredient list is inulin that's a really yep um a really common one um and you know that's found in something like chicory root so that's you'll see that in a lot of these prebiotics and that's your fructo oligosaccharide saccharides um, and the galacto ones, um, you're looking at more your dairy products, which sort of almost seems like a contradiction a bit in because we know that, you know, pets don't, well, cats especially don't have the lactase, do they, the adult cats much. So it yeah. seems funny to think of um, giving anything that might be related to dairy, but obviously it's all being broken down. And, um, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, yep. and, and there's certain root, root vegetables have the galacto-oligosaccharides as well, so... Um, So in practice, um, Mm. so a couple of questions on that. So in practice, um, you personally, A, are you usually usually reaching for a supplement to add the prebiotics into the diet or are you looking for a food source? And B, are you always routinely prescribing prebiotics and probiotics together? Yeah, so I think if we're talking about a healthy dog with no or cat, shouldn't we? Poor cats. We'll get onto them more in detail. So <laughs> cats will have their limelight soon. <laughs> I know. We've got to give them a limelight. No one gets, not enough people give them a limelight. <laughs> if we're talking about a healthy pet with no comorbidities, so no gut issues, no mental health issues, you know, just walking, walking into your clinic and no concerns at all, 
I would look at food-based sources. So I'm not going to pick a supplement for them. I'm going to have really beautiful prebiotic-rich foods. I'll be using something like um, pumpkin, which has a a really nice mixture of soluble and insoluble fibres. I'll be getting colours of the rainbow because, you know, you're ticking most of those boxes. Um, We know we're not scared of a little bit of garlic these days. So I'll be doing all of that and then... And then, I mean, you look at even your beautiful like green tripe that we know now that has your prebiotic, probiotic, digestive enzymes as well in it. So I'll be using all of that in my healthy pets. But the reality is that most of the dogs that walk through the door of a vet clinic have some sort of comorbidity. So I'm often going to be a little bit more targeted with them and and using some sort of supplement um, off the shelf if I'm trying to sort out their gut health or their mental health or something like that. So healthy pets tend to just stick to food-based sources um, and then the ill or comorbidity pets I'll use, obviously food-based as well, but I'll be a bit more targeted sometimes. And is the aim to eventually wean them off that supplement and have them just on a food-based source? That would be really nice. I'd really love that. Um, I find that... Look, I, I've, maybe some of them get there, but I'd fi- I'd say the majority of them will end up either reducing the requirement of the number of supplements, but they'll often still have it as a bit of a tool in their toolkit for, for you know, little flare ups or because yeah. the reality is, is most most dogs with chronic gut issues, it's rare to be able to heal at one hundred percent, isn't it? You just it's more like yeah. allergies. It becomes a bit of a management thing, doesn't it? I guess yeah. the, the ones with mental health issues, anxiety. Again, it depends on if we we think at the end of the day there's a genetic cause for it and then you often do need to stay on supplements for life don't you so or if it's yeah. if it's a um if there's another cause you might be able to wean off so it's a bit of a case by case condition of course, that's with everything. Uh, the, yeah. the ideal would be to get onto food sources so that they're mm-hmm. you know just on whole food sources of 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 anything that's that's everyone's ideal isn't it but it's really common yeah if they've got the comorbidities to require it some degree some support yeah Mm. and um just looping back to your comment about garlic (laughs) I know this is totally off topic but it's not really um I think when I went through uni and my time in practice which is gosh I mean I graduated more than 10 years ago which is kind of crazy um garlic was a big no-no and everyone was a bit scared of it so can you just indulge us with what the latest thinking is around garlic and what you recommend um sort of safe use to be yeah it's a a fun topic i love talking about yeah just send a a tiktok or a real yeah (laughs) so the reason that um garlic is really is a bit on the controversial side is it's part of the allium family so and we know onions are really toxic don't we so onions are well proven studied and the reason they're toxic is they um, contain a high level of thiosulfates so Mm -hmm. garlic is still part of the same family but it doesn't have it's like got trace levels if anything of these thiosulfates which cause this kidney failure so yeah we're talking like the anemia and then the kidneys and everything sort of goes doesn't it so yeah yeah. um yeah it's it's different to to other things that where we worry about a toxic but garlic is this it causes this anemia breakdown of the red blood cells and then you worry about everything that's going on 
garlic is, does not do that. So okay. it, um, I know, it, it, who's brave enough to try it? <laughs> it's hard to break down your old, your old way of thinking, isn't it? There's never been a scientific study to actually demonstrate garlic toxicity in dogs. And mm. honestly, we're probably not as brave with cats because we know that they, they just don't seem to have as strong red blood cells, do they? Um, yeah, they're more prone to that anemia, they're still they? actually not really a proven article in cats the the research they've done in dogs are these insane crazy levels of garlic like a dog eating like 200 cloves a day it's ridiculous oh my and gosh even then, it still didn't have that level of it oh, that they're expecting. Wow. so yeah. yeah there's there's no scientific evidence of it it doesn't have the thiosulfate in it that the onions do which is where they get their toxicity from and yep. what I would recommend if you're going to give it is an appropriate dose is like one clove per 15 to 20 kilos of body weight for a dog. Okay. I'd yep. probably avoid it in a cat just because yeah. it just doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, um, that's, but good. I that's wouldn't, good advice. I wouldn't have a heart attack if a cat licked something that had the tiniest bit of garlic yeah, in it. Yeah, sure. Okay. So, well, you're making yeah. me feel better about feeding my dog leftover homemade pesto last night that had a clove oh, of garlic go. in there it. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. But onion, me. obviously, yeah. <laughs> onion, different story. Please don't feed your pets onion. Um, yeah. And, Any onion yeah, at but, all? Is there like no safe level? Yeah, I wouldn't. Like even yeah. even the raw feeders and the fresh feeders, um, they still won't even – use a broth that has had onion in it and could have a yeah, trace right. amount. So and okay. they're usually the, you know, more uh experienced of of the, you know, of people that are feeding raw and fresh food and stuff. Yep. But it, there was yep. only a few years ago, um I can't remember, like really well known brands of commercial raw dog food had garlic in their recipes. Yeah, well, I mean, um, you see it quite only, a lot on shelves. Yeah, exactly. And they've only taken them out because of public. They can't be, yeah. like, I don't know about can't be bothered, but it's just too much of a headache to deal with the public yeah. backlash yeah. from it um, that they, like, I'm just going to take it out. It's too hard. But it's been yeah, used a long yeah. time. There's theory yeah. against fleas and worms and this and that. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible for yeah. the immune system too. Yeah. Okay. Yes. That's good to know. There you go. Well, sorry, I, I totally sidetracked us, but um, I thought that that was an important thing to just explore because I knew it was a little bit of a bombshell you dropped there about the garlic. I know. Um, I so know. really good worry, to clean that start, up. <laughs> I'm not going to start telling you to feed your dog's grapes either. They are toxic. No, okay. They're tartaric acid in them now with the kidneys and stuff. So I'm only yes. saying garlic. It's everything. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, we can talk about avocados. Stays on the list. That's another controversial one. I feel like it's another whole topic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Probably should add that to our list. Um, Well, let's get let's get back into um, our chat about the guts. Well, I mean, this is all relevant anyway. But what I'd really love to um, dive into now is. and look, maybe things have changed since I left practice. It was more than five years ago since I worked in clinical practice. But the broad use of antibiotics for acute gastroenteritis. Um, so obviously the most common one reached for is metronidazole or amoxiclav. I know that the position, the sort of formal position of, on this is changing, but what are your thoughts on this and how can we try and change the prescribing behaviour of vets who are a little bit at the end of their tether with perhaps pet parents who are coming in at the end of their tether 
due to diarrhea all through the house and they just want that quick, you know, within 24 hours resolution. Because um, I would really love to see the practice changing and protocols changing to reach for a probiotic in those instances, but I don't think we're quite there. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, so I am a guilty vet that started off my career as one of these. I used oh, so did I. So yeah. much metronidazole and I'm so embarrassed yeah. now. So there's really good research now that metronidazole is quite, really quite damaging, especially on the clostridial populations in the gut, isn't that? Like it's, it's a little yeah. bit scary um, to to look at really what damage we could have been doing. The it, It's... It's hard to beat metronidazole for a quick fix. Like it works so well. I know, because well. it works. <laughs> oh, my gosh, it works so well. And I think also because it had, has this really beautiful anti-inflammatory component. So not only yeah. did it fix the diarrhea, but actually made the dogs feel better really quickly. Yeah. So yeah. it really, I, I empathise and I understand why people reach for it. It really does work. And it's cheap, it's quick, it's easy. Yeah. Gosh, it had so many benefits. But it's just got way too much research now to show the long-term damage to the gut and the trouble the gut has recovering from a course yeah. of metronidazole. So I really, I I wouldn't touch it unless I have to now. And if I do reach for it, I always use um, the, I always use Saccharomyces boulardii, uh, that sort of, that At yeast, the, same time. the non-pathogenic yeast, uh, yeah, yep. with it. And I actually use it at the same time. Yeah, um, that's great. So do you literally give it at the same time or do you separate? I mean, because obviously the metronidazole is not going to affect the Saccharomyces because yeah. it's a yeast-based probiotic. So you can just give it at the same time. Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there's the the issue with, I guess, giving your your probiotics the same as antibiotics is you worry that the antibiotics can kill off the, the probiotic yeah. at the same time. Saccharomyces boulardii is a non-pathogenic yeast that has amazing evidence. It's probably one of my favorite favorite products yeah. out there to um, reduce the dysbiosis that you get from antibiotic use. So I'm sorry, going, yeah, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. I'll come back. Um, we And it, it is one that I use all day, every day in clinic. Yeah. If I'm using yeah. antibiotics, I talk to the owners about, because I still use antibiotics. We need to use them. Not always yeah. for gut issues, sometimes for skin. They're just, yeah. you know, they're as integrative as I am. Those pharmaceutical drugs, antibiotics, yeah, have saved many have lives place. over many years. Yep. We need them sometimes, yep. but we 100%. need to remember what they do to the body. So, um, yeah, I always reach for the Saccharomyces boulardii these days. So, yeah, yep. I guess my what I my message would be is that the I empathise that the the antibiotics like metronidazole are amazing with upset tummies and they do work so quickly, but there is just far too much evidence now that they have a long-term consequence that we just cannot continue to reach for them as a first yep. line use um, yep. when we have a dog with diarrhea anymore. There's just too much. And, and look, we're so lucky now that there are so many fantastic <laughs> products that we have uh, you know, at arms, at our doorstep, they're so easy and the pets respond so well to them. So there's some brilliant yeah. products now that have, um, they generally have a prebiotic, a probiotic, and they've often got like a clay in them as well, yeah. some sort yeah. of, um, and, and the dogs respond so well to them and cats. Um, yeah. So we just, yeah. we just don't need to be, you know, the, the, the potential for these antibiotics to cause this disruption to the to the natural balance or the, the dysbiosis is just too vast that we just can't be reaching for them. So if we're going to use antibiotics, it really has to be targeted and we really need to have 
a good reason to use it. And we need to be using probiotics at the same time to yep. replenish all that, that bacteria that might have been killed off during the, the antibiotic treatment. And um, continue with the probiotics after finishing the course as well. Yeah, I do tend to. I do tend to let yeah. it overrun a little bit. Uh, yeah. And also I keep up the prebiotics for a long time as well. So whether yeah, I'm sure. using a product that's got a prebiotic in it or whether I'm just encouraging the owners to use really prebiotic-rich foods, um, that's yeah. really important too. And and obviously when you've got diarrhea, you're, you generally tend to be on a um, – you know, a, a really bland diet like turkey and pumpkin these days, not the chicken and rice we used to yeah, use for a long time. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so you're, you're still often, recommending that? Like if you had a dog walk in with diarrhoea and there was no indication for antibiotics, that's what you would typically recommend is stripping back the diet to sort of a simple digestible protein and carbohydrate source and adding in a pre and probiotic? Yeah, I tend to. So it depends on the case. If I've got um, a really simple a really simple case and I know the dog really well, um, it, I'll, I'll tend to just do a, a one-to-one ratio of um, cooked turkey to pumpkin um, yep. because pumpkin has the most beautiful blend of soluble and insoluble fibres that really soothes the gut. So it's, yeah, it's nice. with, the, with the soluble fibres, just for anyone listening, they obviously absorb the water and they're just, you know, they're just so soothing. And then the insoluble fibres are one that's then going down to the the colon that we we're talking about and then that can sort yeah, of feed the bacteria and things that like fermentation. that. Um, so yep. you've got that really nice complement uh, going on with the, with the pumpkin. And it, it has the ability to soothe diarrhea and then also has the ability to help constipation too. So I really love it. Yeah, nice. I really love it. Um, and yeah. I'll go a nice lean dose on it. If, if it's an adult dog, I'll generally fast them for a while as well. Um, yeah. there's, there's so many different ways you can do it and you can get a lot more complicated. If I've got a really strict integrative client that's really well versed in raw feeding I might do something a bit more sophisticated with bone broth and things like that but for the yeah, general yeah. um in you know the general client I keep it really simple and I'll then use a really nice pre-probiotic blend um yeah that's got you know just really good beneficial bacteria um and then and then the clay as well and they I'd say 90% of them are fixed within sort of 48 hours they really are yeah, so, so you're I'm only really... thinking like one more day compared to metronidazole or really exactly which is exactly. nothing in the scheme of things and you're protecting their microbiome yeah and I think that most more often than not everything's back to education isn't it so if you're actually explaining yeah. to the clients why you're doing what you're doing they're on board anyway they don't want a dog with long-term inflammatory bowel disease that is really sensitive to getting more upset tummies do they so I think yeah. I think with with everything we do as vets it all comes down to the way we educate our our clients as to yeah, why we're we making the choices we make um yeah. and you know I might if I've got a, a 15 year old dog that's really unwell I might still reach for the metronidazole sometimes depends on the case like it's not a one size fits all um but if yeah. I ever do I still throw in the Saccharomyces boulardii as well and I still yeah. discuss yeah. with the clients the pros and cons of the choices we're making yeah so are you seeing well in all in the evidence and also what you've seen in clinic if you um for those patients who have been given sort of multiple courses of metronidazole do you see that 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 alone sort of predisposes them to having further bouts of diarrhea the next time they're exposed to something that might not agree with them I do does it actually it's like a quick fix in the short term but actually then creates some bigger issue in the long term 
Yeah, I think I could almost yeah. put my hand on my heart and say if I look at back at these dogs that had have had metronidazole since a young age, if you look through their, their history of their life, they've had multiple metronidazole courses. They're not a yeah. just a one-off kind of scenario. Yeah, 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 interesting. Mm, yeah scary, okay good it? well I think um you and I are very aligned with with that topic certainly and hopefully you know education like what we're creating today can can reach as many people as possible and start to change the way that people practice but you're right it really does come down to that education of the pet parent um at the end of the day because they're the ones who are having to take the animal home with you know possibly blood streak diarrhea all through their absolutely beige carpet house and so I get it I I I understand the frustration from their side as well yeah absolutely and I think that that's it at the end of the day it has to be a team approach doesn't it it's not just us dictating what we want to be done as long as they understand the pros and cons of everything and you make a decision together yep absolutely I love having um the pet parents so you know such an advocate for their pets health and so involved in in you know in decisions and treatment plans because then you're just going to have such a better response as well when they're really on board and it's such a cohesive approach it's a lot that's that's the way I really enjoy practicing I um, most clients that are drawn to me most clients that I really enjoy working with it is absolutely them and they know their pet better than we do oh my goodness they absolutely know that I I trust their gut instinct on a lot of things I would like to you you know, if you think we need to do more, then let's do more testing. I had, yeah. I, I know I had a, I had a case recently where um, this, I've known this owner for such a long time and her last dog um, had quite a traumatic end to its life. And so she was quite hyper alert with the new dog that she mm. had. And mm. this dog had just mm. had a gut issues, nothing major, but, and, and we were just desexing it. And I was like, look, I can, if you want to, while we sedate it, we can ultrasound it. It's fine. We'll just rule anything out because it was a Bernese mountain mm-hmm. dog and we know they're prone to quite mm-hmm. a few things. And yeah. I said, I trust you. And and we we organised the ultrasound and I said to the ultrasound, I said, look, this is just for peace of mind. You're probably going to find yeah. nothing. But yeah. And the dog literally had no clinical signs of anything really other than a sensitive tummy you would put it down to. I had yep. a look on the ultrasound. One kidney was enlarged. The ureter was <gasps> blocked on one side. Oh, my and gosh. I, and it ended up having this amazing surgery with a specialist surgeon and the dog's a lot better now. But it just wow. it was just one of those examples. And the, the owner said to me, she's like, thank you for listening to me and not dismissing my concerns. Yeah. And, I said, and yeah. it was one of those classic examples of you just have to trust. We yeah. don't know everything. And yep. the, you can't tell everything and sometimes you just have to trust. You, you know your mother's instinct whether they're human or fur, don't I you? Know. So, <laughs> I was just thinking yeah. about that too. Yeah, they it always is, say really when you have is. a baby, like the mother's instinct really should trump anyone else's opinion because it's just been so, you know, in historically just so aligned to what actually truly might be going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah it was um, – your naughty dogs in the background here. Yeah, it was just such one of those, like, beautiful that we got the right outcome, but I could yeah. have easily just Bit of a wake up call. There really wasn't anything wrong with the dog. Yeah. Um, but obviously, wow. at some point in time, it would have turned into something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, that, well that's yeah. a really interesting case. And yeah, big wake up call. 
Um, yes, well, yeah, look, yeah. let's give let's give let's give cats a little bit of love because I know we've talked a lot about dogs, um, but cats, yes. you know, they're such a unique species and so different to dogs in so many ways. So, are you seeing different sort of, you know, gastrointestinal presentations in cats compared to dogs? Like, what are the most common reasons you might see a cat for GI concerns? Yeah, that's it. I love. We we do need to give more attention to the cats. So I actually have a. Um, I can link in the bio if you're interested. I actually have a good paper that came out a couple of uh, about four or five months ago now, on um, the effect of multi-strain probiotics on feline gut health through the fecal microbiota. Uh, yeah, so it might be absolutely. really interesting just to see where we're up to with the cats because they do they don't get enough. Um, enough sort of discussion and research and interest do they so I can I'll, I'll no. share that with the with the listeners as well so Thank I you. think with the cats the similarities are your vomiting and diarrhea so vomiting yep. is really common in cats and I also think it gets dismissed quite a bit like the number of cats where if you really quiz the owners and they're like oh yeah they vomit once every couple of weeks but yeah. that's normal isn't it I'm like no it's not yeah. normal yeah, um, it's probably so it's just a hairball. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Certainly, um, vomiting and diarrhea. But I think because cats don't complain, they just go quiet. It often gets dismissed. Constipation is yeah. probably more common in cats than it is in dogs. Mm. So I think if you speak to a lot of integrated vets, I, I think they would say that lots of cats suffer from a chronic level of dehydration with the way people feed them yeah. these days with yeah. all the, yeah. the kibble food. at the end of the day, they're um, obligate carnivores. Um, they would hunt out their their prey, wouldn't they? And if you think about what that prey would look like, and it'd be about 70% water, and then yeah. we're feeding them, a lot of people feed them kibble, which is like 10%. Yeah. They're just, yeah. it's just such a, so far from what they na- they naturally yeah. would have eaten. So All I think a lot of them do, yeah, do suffer a bit of dehydration. So you've got constipation, um, that's a big one. You do still see the inflammatory bowel disease type conditions that you do mm. see in, in dogs as well. Um, mm-hmm. And then the poor cats with the hairballs. So yes. a bit of a, it's a bit of a cat thing, isn't it? Yeah, 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 certainly. So, and I remember when I was in practice, you know, obviously hopefully was <laughs> taught that, you know, vomiting is never normal, but there was a lot of opinion with cat owners that vomiting was always just hairball related and it was normal. But I yeah. was always taught that no amount of vomiting was normal and it always needed investigating. Yeah, it it sort of breaks my heart a little bit with cats, what they put up with. Do you know what I mean? Mm, like even yeah. um, I even had my mum's cat that I did a dental on yeah, on Monday and she had an oriental and he's, he was just off his food a bit but playing everything was fine. Two years old, gave him an anaesthetic, just full of, and you can't get near him, he's crazy, can't mm. like full of FRLs. Like I extracted most oh. of his teeth. And I'm like, it would have been so much pain. Oh, I know. Hopefully, my mum's not listening to this. But yeah, it's just you just think what they put up with. But they just, they're just such different. um, They're just such different creatures because they just don't complain. Well, or they complain by way of showing different behavioural. Yes, you know, like hiding or becoming aggressive and things like that. Um, Exactly. But you can never really pinpoint it to sort of discomfort somewhere. Well, that's um, the thing. And he's always been a feisty cat forever. Yeah, but so just we put it down to him different. being an oriental. And you're like, well, maybe yeah. it was because he's had these brewing, Pain. you know, since he yeah. was young. 
Yeah, well, let's, it'll be interesting to see, you know, once he recovers from his procedure. Yes. If he turns out being like a lovely, purry, happy, content then I'll cat really that sits on people's laps. Um, no, really but it's just one of those things you just learn from, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Oh, it yeah. Is. And you have to sedate him to even look at him. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Um, so, you know, and you're not going to do full mouth extractions on much younger than two years, are you, really? Yeah. Oh, I know. Poor little thing. These cats and the no, dogs in the background. So, hey, Don't worry, hey, it hey. makes it. <laughs> makes it more authentic. <laughs> I know it does. It shows you what real life as a vet is like, doesn't it? Having That's two right. Dogs, yeah. like having kids. Yeah. I know. Well, it was lucky that you can't hear my kids in the background because that's always a risk for me as well. <laughs> I know. Um, that's so why no, when that's I do fine. the live ones and you can see the videos and you see the kids running around, it's a bit of a load. Yeah. Um, no, everyone's yeah, used so to that since it. COVID. Yeah, is that what you would experience in clinic? Would you agree with that as your general presentation of um Yeah, definitely the vomiting. Yeah, the vomiting more than diarrhea. I mean, unless you're sort of talking a kitten who's, you know, we know that kittens yes. are sort of yes. more prone to diarrhea and things. But I certainly agree and particularly for those older cats who most of them will have some degree of renal insufficiency. So that's mm. contributing to the dehydration as well. And the constipation can become really severe in yes. those guys. Um so, well, so we've talked about, you know, vomiting and constipation being a bit more common in cats than dogs. Um, and we did talk about whether there's evidence um, for certain probiotics in cats and we're going to link to that paper. But what yes. about prebiotics for cats? Because obviously, as you mentioned, they're obligate carnivores. So typically they would have eaten, you know, entire rats, mice, birds yeah. and, and sort of got all of their nutrition that way. Um, but what about their requirement for fibre? Yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously the the bacteria in their gut is going to be targeted for animal-based protein, isn't it? And then mm. we're talking about fibre and that's obviously plant-based. So there's there's part of you that thinks, well, hang on, why would they need that if they're designed to basically eat meat and animal-based meat? How is that actually going to be beneficial? But there there is still really good benefits um, of prebiotics and using plant-based fibres. It's just we need to do it in a more targeted way. And and essentially mm. what it means is just less of it, doesn't it? So rather yeah. than um, we just have to be a bit more careful with how much we're, we're giving. But I think absolutely the the um, prebiotics in the cats, so just a little bit of fibre goes a really mm-hmm. long way to, mm-hmm. to helping them. Um, and so you can give them a little bit of pumpkin and things like that. Yeah, they're, I was going to ask what your food it. source would be. Yeah. Yeah. And then your other kind of classic ones, like even a bit of psyllium husk, um, mm. you know, those kind of fibers can, I think, really help cats. It's just essentially doing less of it, isn't it? So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Just being a little yeah. bit more targeted, like you said. And for hairballs, obviously, you know, some of the um, diets on the market do contain. Um, some specific fibres that might ha- help um, with hairballs. Do you have a like a protocol that you would use um, with choosing a particular supplement or particular food for a cat who is struggling with hairballs to help, you know, from a fibre perspective to help with that or are you more looking at sort of lubrication and things like that? I think you, you definitely want to, I, I guess I probably approach them in a still a similar way. I tend to find that um, diet plays a huge role anyway. So I would say in my 
cats, even my long head cats that are fed a fresh food diet, so raw meat or, or lightly cooked meat um, and low in carbs anyway, they tend mm. to not really have major issues with hairball. So if I've mm-hmm. got them on a little bit of a um, low starch fiber, so I'll be using a little bit of pumpkin, a little bit of psyllium husk, as we say, yeah. you're going to get yeah. that really nice motility in yeah. the, the gut and and then I don't tend to need the lubrication as much. So my ideal scenario for my hairballs would be fresh food diet with a bit of pumpkin yep. and psyllium husk. Whereas yep. if I'm talking yep. about the kibble addict sort of cats with with the hairballs, it's a little bit of a different story. I'll try and add in mm. the pumpkin and the psyllium husk for good luck. So um, yeah, I know. I, unfortunately that. that's when I tend to reach for a little bit of lubrication just to get things moving. Yeah, um, yeah it's a, sure. they're, they're trickier ones, the kibble the kibble ones yeah. with the with the once they're icon, on kibble so. there's kind of like no going back from that isn't it I mean that's no, the, exactly. that's the struggle with cats a lot of the time is palatability and actually getting medicines and supplements into them um and that's you know I know such a concern and struggle for so isn't many it yeah because yeah. I mean you can yeah. say all you like oh look when yeah. fibers ingested it's going to absorb water and swell adding bulk to the stool and then that's going to yeah. stimulate motility and all that and it sounds fantastic but if you can't get the cat to eat it then there's yeah. um you know you're not going to win any of the game so so yeah, yeah certainly exactly. my, my idea would be that I, I rarely need your your lubricants um because, yeah, I mean, I might give them a little bit of, of cod liver oil or something like that, but it's got other health benefits too. So Yeah, and they'll yeah. probably eat that too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The pungent exactly. flavour that it is. Yeah, yes. great. Oh, gosh, we've covered so much today, Nicole. Um, I think we've we've sort of touched on all the areas that I particularly wanted to go, go yeah. through. But is there anything else that you feel that's been left out that you'd like to share? So I guess for me, the only thing that I think is really worth pointing out is just to make sure people don't read the or listen to this this podcast and then start just throwing probiotics and prebiotics at their pets, just hoping they're going to yeah. do something to help. There's some yep. really interesting research out there that, um, you know, not all probiotics are good. Not all people respond really well to probiotics. There's some interesting research about that they can trigger headaches and brain fog and things like that. Oh, so really? You still want yeah. you still want a good reason to use them. I know. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that they can increase histamine levels. So you can find yes. that if they if they can't tolerate that and bring the histamine levels back down to normal, then then that can cause issues as well. So as much as I like my green tripe, that if that's going to increase the yeah, histamine okay. levels, that's not going to agree with with all bodies, whether they're human yeah, or fur. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like some people, how they. It, you know, they have your Jerusalem artichokes or garlic and they get bloated and, you know, not, not yeah, everything agrees yeah. with everyone. So, so I yep. guess my, my yep. main take home would be to not just blanket treat every animal the same, hoping you're going to be helping you. It really yep. needs to be a targeted approach um, yep. for each case. And yeah, I certainly would ideally lean towards whole foods for a lot of these things but if you know there's some amazing supplements on the market now and our knowledge is getting better by the day with all this so it's really exciting and then the last bit that we didn't cover was um just to mention that the when you're looking at the dose of probiotics it tends to be between one and ten billion colony forming units we call them cfus in 
yep. in the pet world. So that's for dogs and for cats, it's it's lower. Yep. It's about 100 million to 1 billion CFUs use per day. Yeah, so, sure. Okay. Um, and is that total, so if you've got like a blend with two or three strains, is that total CFUs for all of them together? Yeah. Uh, no, I'd, I'd still want probably a billion per strain, I guess. Okay. And then when you're looking yep. at the um, Saccharomyces boulardii, if I'm using that for dysbiosis, then I want I tend to use actually like 10 billion per 10 kilos. I go quite high okay. if I'm using it yep. whilst where they're on antibiotics. So there's yep. some good. Yep. I'll I've, I have got the paper somewhere on that. I'll see if I can find yeah. it. Yeah, send it to us in and the we bio. Can pop it in. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's really that's really interesting, and and that sort of comes back to you know your therapeutics, isn't it? You don't want to just throw something at a patient hoping it's going to do the best if we want to use evidence-based medicine um, yeah, as sure. much as we can. Yeah, no, of course. And I guess that kind of loops us around to sometimes that's so challenging with cats because we don't have, and there's, you know, to my knowledge, there's been no studies done using Saccharomyces boulardii for cats Bloody with GI yeah. disorders. Um, yeah. It is mentioned in this article, this really new article, so I'll pop it off oh, good. there. Um, Great. But, yeah, I know the poor little cats. So, yeah, hopefully I know. this brings a so, little bit more yeah. attention to them. They're not little dogs, are they? No, and so I guess it's up to, you know, um, the practitioner to to feel confident with the sort of agreeance and making a plan with their cat parent to either only stick with um, food-related uh, probiotics and prebiotic sources or to trial something that has no evidence but just being really slow and careful or to only stick with something that has sort of published evidence for it. I mean, they're really your sort of three options when it comes to cats given the lack of evidence there is for certain strains. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way I tend to lean with the cats is you're not going to get anything done if you're waiting for published evidence for everything. No. Um, so yeah. I tend to just you know, as we've mentioned a few times, the education side, and I tend to just introduce supplements really slowly to cats yeah, and just watch yeah, for yeah, their, for I mean, sure. you, you can't go and throw something new in a high dose to them anyway, because they won't have it. They won't need um, it. But yeah, yeah but a, a slow yeah. introduction to cats um, is, you know, is really good. So good for it everyone. tends to Very be a good better advice. approach. Great. Amazing. Well, it sounds like we've got some really nice resources to share in the show notes from today. And we'll, of course, put in um, your contact details, um, your essential oil business, Shy Tiger. We're going to link to that in the show notes. And of course, your vet clinic um, at Mont Albert. Um, so we'll make sure that we've got all of those um, contacts still correct from the last podcast that we did yeah, together. Thank you. You can, you and, can link um, my, my TikTok these days as well. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. We'd love that. Yeah. So uh, we'll definitely. Definitely link all of those things. Gosh, I think you're the first guest we've ever had that's got a TikTok account. So that's very exciting. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> Amazing. Definitely keeping up with the times much more than I am. I don't think I've even ever been on TikTok. <laughs> oh fantastic well oh gosh I just love talking to you Nicole thank you so much for coming back you're just a wealth of knowledge and your um, your clients and your patients must be so thrilled to have you looking after them in such a beautiful way so thank you for everything that you do and everything that you've brought today it's been wonderful oh thank you it's such a pleasure so yeah I hope everyone has taken something away from it but it's always a pleasure to to share how we can empower um, other vets vet nurses and pet parents so yeah. do our best for our pets thank you so much you have a great day and we'll chat again soon you too thanks sarah bye this was the pure animal podcast and i'm dr sarah howard 
If you enjoyed our episode today with Dr. Nicole Rue, please feel free to jump onto iTunes and give us a rating and review. 